People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. I have with me in the studio a Booker Prize winner, Damon Galgut, who's just won the 2021 Booker Prize for his book, The Promise. Damon was born in Pretoria and wrote his first novel, A Sinless Season, when he was a mere 17. His other books include Small Circle of Beings, The Beautiful Screaming of Pigs, The Quarry, The Good Doctor and The Imposter. And by the way, The Good Doctor was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize as well, the Commonwealth Writers Prize and the Dublin IMPAC Award. The Imposter was also shortlisted for the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and you've also dabbled in film scripts. So, Damon, welcome, welcome. Hi, thanks. It's good to have you here. You must be exhausted. I read somewhere that ever since you've come back from the Booker Prize thing, you've been inundated for requests with interviews and things from the media. Yeah, it's sort of… So, I'm guilty. No, it's all right. It's your job, and I'm doing mine, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that started almost immediately after over there, in fact, and it sort of hasn't let up here so far. <laughs> but it's good in a way, isn't it? Because it gives you good publicity. Well, of course. I mean, that's sort of what the prize does give you, a platform to yeah. publicize the book and also, unfortunately, yourself in the process. That's the part that's uncomfortable for a lot of writers, I guess. Yes, and you're one of them, aren't you? I read some of that. You're a very, very private person. Well, yeah, as you can see, um, not so private at the moment, but yeah, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't come naturally. It's a condition I have to adapt to still. Yeah, yeah. Have you always been like that since, well, since you wrote your first book? Um, yeah, it's my temperament, I guess. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, not so surprising that a writer would be a recluse in general. I know writers who break that rule and definitely aren't, but mm -hmm. um, it's not so odd that uh, people who choose to write would also be people who are comfortable with themselves for long stretches of time because, you know, it's part of the requirements. It's part of the slog, for want of yeah. a better word. I usually always enjoy asking an author how they write. Do you get up early? Do you sit in a dark room? Do you sit out on the patio? How do you write physically? Mm, well, I work longhand in uh, notebooks. I like the old-fashioned hands-on basic approach and I use the term hands-on advisedly in the sense that actually part of it is the feeling of holding a pen and its weight and the speed at which you can move it physically across the page. I mean these may sound like small antiquated things but they're sort of what matter Absolutely. Um, to I'm me. I'm very glad to hear you say that by mm -hmm. the way. There's nothing quite like a fountain pen moving across good paper. There you go. You have the same fetish, I can tell. <laughs> um, but if you have it, you have it. I mean, and, you know, the I get these sort of old-fashioned hand-stitched ledger books um, from India when I visit there because oh, they, right. they still use such things to keep accounts at corner stores and so on. All mm -hmm. that's changing and they'll probably disappear, but at the moment they're sort of freely available and they're really... So you literally start your book with making, jotting down notes... Well, or I started start just by trying to start it. Um, you just you <laughs> just throw yourself in. I mean, that's yeah. usually not how it, you know, the, what you think is the beginning usually ends up not being the beginning, yeah, but yeah. that's just, you, you have to begin somewhere. So that's, yeah, you just throw yourself in, I guess. And the thoughts, I was talking to an author recently about his characters and his thoughts. Do they swirl around in your head and you feel they have to be written down? Or do you have to, is it a struggle? Well, um, 
my thoughts are often not thoughts where the shaping of the book's concerned. I mean, um, they become thoughts in the sense of, of uh, being you know, consciously structured and focused. Um, books for me begin in a much more sort of unconscious way, like mm-hmm. you might have an image or a sense of maybe a couple of people in a situation that feels like it's got a, a voltage to it, somewhere it ah, can go. Voltage, yeah. um, so very often it's sort of an unconscious beginning with mm-hmm. something and you're teasing it out and just sitting with it. So, I mean, the the ideas that last are the ones that stand up to a bit of mental testing so um, you know a lot of ideas come and then fizzle out or don't teased out as you say well it's a way of putting it i mean Mm. you're obviously you're trying to see where various strands might go but you're not necessarily thinking conscious thoughts as in you know what's the best outcome for this or whatever you're just you're you're trying to feel it more than think Mm -hmm. it if you know what i mean the thinking and comes at the end. I saw some of this book, The Promise, which you're going to be speaking about, resulted from a, a drink you were having with a friend and he was <laughs> telling you stories of funerals and things. Yeah, it's amazing how many people are focused on the drink as an element in that. It was actually quite <laughs> incidental. We were having lunch and we drank some wine. But, yeah, it probably loosened up his thinking and his tongue. And he's the last member left of his family. And he started telling me stories from the four family funerals he'd been to, his mother, father, brother, sister. Yeah. I mean, you know, you'd think that's pretty dark, and of course it is in a certain way, but um, I guess we all use humor as a defense against that kind of dark, and he is a very funny guy. Anyway, he was being very, very funny. You know, not about the deaths, but about people's behavior. Um, mm. Funerals being one of those forums where families come together from all over, you know, weddings being another. Anyway, it appealed to me on various levels. Firstly, because, um, you know, death and mortality are much on my mind as I go on. And they, they're on my literary mind, too, in the sense that death is a worthy subject for contemplation. But also, time is, um, it's more and more interesting to me to try and use time in the narrative itself, as in the kind of jumps that you can make, narratively speaking, that play with time um, are appealing. Um, they sort of become part of the structure of the book as well as being part of its subject. Mm-hmm. And then from meeting that chap to writing it, is it, was it a long process to write The Promise? Mm, I always take long. Um, first drafts for me are very messy and slow, so I take a long time. Um, I don't really know where I'm going. I, d- I don't know anything, actually. So <laughs> right. um, that's why I say not much thinking necessarily connected to it. But I figure stuff out with the first draft, which is actually much more than a first draft because you're revising all the time as you go along. And then, um, you know, the pleasurable bit comes at the end when you pull everything together, when you are consciously thinking about why you've introduced something or why you're so you know, obsessed with this particular character at this moment, it means something and you have to deduce for yourself what your own unconscious has thrown up and try to shape it somehow, if I can mm-hmm. put it like that. Yeah. Damon, what is your first piece of music? I'm intrigued to know what your music tastes are and what you're going to share with us. Well, you know, any musical list is, uh, you know, going to be partial and also uh, maybe reflective of a particular way of thinking. I've chosen pieces that have meant stuff to me or, you know, that are by artists that have meant something to me over the course of my life. So the first piece is a kind of yeah loose modern jazz piece called Brown Rice by Don Cherry, who, you know, is a 
respected, long-standing jazz musician, often working in a much more traditional mode. But I don't know what went on with him with this particular album. But <laughs> I, it it has the feel of you know very interesting sideways, perhaps substance-induced lateral flow. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I often listen to this kind of jazz when I'm working. So it's the, the rhythms appeal to me.
Don Cherry, a piece called Brown Rice, and it was the first choice of my guest on this week's edition of People of Note, the author Damon Galgut, who is the winner of the 2021 Booker Prize for his book, The Promise. A couple of things I want to ask you about The Promise without giving things away, as we know we mustn't do. Spoilers, I think they're called. One of the first questions is, tell me about the cover, this young girl who's staring very sadly at the camera. Mm, I think the sadness is something you've projected onto her, which is what's interesting about the photo. It's the sort of photo you could actually project uh, many and various emotions onto. She came from a photo by a Dutch photographer, um, whose name I don't think I've ever learned, um, but she's a Dutch girl, um, and the image was spotted by my UK editor, Clara Mm -hmm. Farmer. Uh, and, you know, um, a bunch of images were sent to me as possible cover picture material, but um, this photo sort of stirred all of us. Um, I guess it refers in an uh, interior echo sort of way to the young girl, Amor Swart, who's the youngest member of the family that mm-hmm. the book deals with. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the way she's looking um, straight out has something of a camera lens about it because of the way it's centered, right? So yeah. um, the book itself also employs, I guess, certain cinematic techniques in its uh, narrative voice. So that, in a kind of unspoken way, appealed to both the publisher and me. Um, okay. The sort of detail that no one else would necessarily pick up on. But talking about cinematic, there's a story that you stopped writing this book for a while and did a film script and came back to writing the book and decided to kind of extend it or liven it up somehow or just help me along here. Yeah, I got offered the chance to do a couple of drafts of a film. I took the job partly because I love cinema. I mean, I love its possibilities. I watch a lot of movies, um, especially old ones. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm just attracted to the narrative techniques of cinema, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, again, maybe because they use time as part of the medium. I mean, the cuts and the jumps are very much time-invested shifts. Which you've done in your book. Well, they're, they're, they're there very, you go. Someone, some critic called it head-hopping, mm. where you are in someone's head for a while, then suddenly in someone else's head. Right. And it takes you a few seconds to kind of work out where you are as the reader. Well, this technique, as you've sort of alluded to, came to me through the writing of the couple of drafts of the film script. When I left that job, I came back to my book, and I, I mean, the same day, and I was in something of a temper um, (laughs) and uh, picked the book up, you know, kind of angrily and started reading what I'd already written. I guess I had about 20,000 words or so, and just suddenly saw that the entire narrative could be put onto a different sort of footing. And the logic of it came from the writing of the film script, exactly that head-hopping you're Mm -hmm. talking about, that you could jump and move fluidly at speed from one point of view to another, and that those points of view didn't necessarily have to be those of the characters. They could be at certain moments, but that you also had a sort of independent narrator to whom you could draw attention, actually, by the ways you used the voice, right? So you, you could make the reader conscious of the fact that the story is being told to you by having the narrator correct him or herself, uh, you know, make the occasional <laughs> Freudian slip or, you know. I've noticed you do it. that. Yes, you do that quite mm. a lot in brackets. Sure. Well, you know, you're meant to do the opposite, try and hide the narrator. You're meant to give <laughs> yes. the impression the narrator is just a pane of glass through which you're looking at the real world. But of course it isn't. I mean, a book is an artifice. So mm-hmm. it's always been a little bit mysterious to me why the other disciplines like painting or theater have long been using techniques that call attention to how 
artificial they are, but novels are a bit shy of that. I mean, there are mm. books that have done that, of course, but um, yeah, and often the most interesting ones. But anyway, it seems underutilized to me, and this became a way for me to push that in my own voice, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Because the narrator, I mean, I remember thinking, who is this telling the story? Uh, but it's just that overview, the narrator, isn't he or she, telling me the story? Well, yes. Basically. Yeah, but, but, you know, it becomes natural to wonder, especially when the narrator's voice becomes distinctive. It becomes yes. natural to wonder, like, who is this? Who is I this mean, person? The yes. assumption is it's a person. So I thought, well, I would undercut that too at certain moments by having <laughs> the narrator address um, the reader directly as, you know, uh, you humans like to behave in this way, implying that the narrator is, in fact, not human, which in a certain sense is true, right? I mean, uh, the, the voice in a book is a disembodied voice. It, it belongs yes. to anything. Yes, true, true. Mm. Now, this idea of film scripts and things, you've had a couple of books made into films. What about this one? Might it become a film script, The Promise? It might, I guess. I mean, there's been some interest from various quarters, but we'll see what develops. I mean, I would imagine a problem here is the aging because, you know, I've used this device of jumping over um, you know many years yes. uh, it's the books told in four parts each one centered on a family funeral which is happening in a different decade so you know big jumps of time and some other characters age from being children to being middle-aged so you know you've got to do that convincingly I mean they can mm -hmm. but these days I suppose well yeah but you probably have to use different actors really to make that convincing and then very mm -hmm. often you can sense that this person is not the same person I mean there's yeah, you, they've got to look convincingly alike and also have uh, some essential energy that persuades you of consistency, I guess. When you do have a book written for a film, do you have to pretty well rewrite it into dialogue, or is that a big job? Well, I have never adapted any of my own um, stuff. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, I would be resistant to that idea, I guess, precisely because you end up having to you know, chop and change your own material at yes. the behest of people yes. who have money. Just <laughs> really not an ideal situation, certainly not for me. I don't think I'd cope with that well at well, all. It would make an astonishing film, I have to say. But anyway, let's not go there. Let's go to another piece of music, Damon. What's your second piece of music? Well, for the second piece, I've, I have to include a Bob Dylan because Bob has been my main man for quite a long time. Um, I'm one of those irrational Bob Dylan devotees. Uh, he can do, well, very little wrong. And I know, I know it's irrational because I actually uh, ascribe, you know, magical powers to him, which other musicians certainly don't have. Anyway, I really like Bob. But um, to my mind, Blind Willie McTell is uh, one of Bob's greatest songs, um, especially the recording that he did just with Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits. Uh, Mark Knopfler playing on the guitar and Bob doing the piano and the vocals um, and, you know, uh, anyone who says Bob can't sing should listen to that particular recording, in my opinion. Anyway, he really, he really gives it his soul at the end. Um, it's, it's great because it's a kind of uh, modern blues number and he really sort of hits a very bare bones version of it here and uh, the song of Bob's that I've listened to maybe more often than any other. Seen the arrow on the doorpost 
in this land is condemned all the way from New Orleans to Jerusalem I travel through East Texas where many And I know no one can sing the blues like Blind Willie down Well, I heard that hoot I'll sing As they were taking down the tent The stars above
Willie McTell, and there you heard Bob Dylan with Mark Knopfler, and the guest's choice, my guest is Damon Galgut, the author, the 2021 Booker Prize author for his book, The Promise, which we're talking about, and um, apparently quite a fan of Bob Dylan as well, judging from your introduction to that piece. Um, do you know what I wanted to say? I wanted to make a confession about this book, which I thoroughly enjoyed, but when it finished, I had the curious sense that I didn't quite understand it and I kind of want to read it again is this something new that I'm confessing um, I like to think of myself as an intelligent reader but it was so layered and I'm, I'm perfectly receptive to the idea that you know uh, you or other people might want to read it again that seems to be a good sentiment <laughs> on which to end a book but um, you'd have to explain to me what aspect you didn't understand for me to be able to respond to that properly I think quite a lot of it had to do with the ending, mm. and I've got to be careful now not to do a spoiler, but just not to give too much information away, our, let's call her our heroine, Amor takes her brother's ashes and puts it on the roof of the house, and then her sister calls her down, and then the book ends. And I thought, what? And I, I was left sort of dangling. Um. And then I thought maybe I hadn't understood something, and I got a terrible neurotic attack. Well, I'm still not entirely clear on what might mystify you, but I can try to answer by maybe coming at this from a different angle, which is to say, you know, for me, every book has a kind of a submerged meaning, a meaning mm -hmm. maybe that's resonant only for the author, uh, rather than the more conscious themes that it obviously wears, if mm -hmm. you like. But for me, the, you know, the submerged meaning of this book is time. I'm really interested in it. Um, and it's what really drew me to this story and to the construction of the story because with these big jumps from one funeral to another sometimes 10 years in between you can show how time affects a great many things i mean the landscape the politics of a country but also in a much more close-up and personal way what it does to people's bodies uh, what it does to people's lives their faces so you know the the sort of narrative voice that um i employed as i say sort of camera inspired leaping around one point of view to another is also very much in alignment with a narrative voice that moves in quick 
dabs, as it were, of a paintbrush. So instead of building up a sustained scene with a, with a sustained sense of characters in it, you move very fast from one point of view to another mm-hmm. all the time. It's, it's in painting terms rather than long brushstrokes. It's small pointillistic dabs, you know. So it's not the usual way of telling a story. But that, to my mind, is also how people are in time. If you think of time as a kind of continuous running river, we're all just little specks all the time. Um, So the usual construction of a book would sort of work against that by saying certain people are more important. You know, these people are at the center of a significant story, which implies that other people are not. In fact, we're all at the center of our own stories, whatever those may be, but we're all just little blips. Mm -hmm. So uh, the only thing that's mysterious about the ending really is that it should be clear that all these stories continue to run. So we're just breaking at what could be an absolutely arbitrary moment. I mean, the story, you know, this particular narrator is elected to tell about the Swart family is coming to an end. But all of these little blips are continuing for some time. Does, does that fill you in at it all? It does just brilliantly. All right. Thank you, Damon. I wish you told me that before. Almost. Well, haven't had the chance. It is quite a dysfunctional family. It's the Swart family. They're wonderful characters for you to have worked with, whether it's Anton, the chap in the army, whether it's the even Salome, the, the maid, let alone Amor, and, and then the Duomini, I mean the pastor, sorry, who's a really comical character amidst all this sort of dysfunctionality. Yeah, telling the story of a dysfunctional group of people is always more interesting and fun than telling the story of a harmonious <laughs> group of people. <laughs> That's, really That's true. just a literary, you know, um, yeah. principle, really. What was Tolstoy's thing that all happy families are alike, but unhappy families, you know, are all unhappy in their own unique way. And that's absolutely true for the Swats as well. Um, You know, I grew up with a fairly dysfunctional family in Pretoria. That's sort of familiar to me. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I see a lot of other dysfunctional families, dysfunctional relationships of all sorts. I mean, they're far more the norm, I think, for humans. We may not want to see things that way, but it is that way. And, yeah, it's interesting. It's always interesting. It bears the stamp of the particular personalities that are combined. Absolutely. But now you mentioned this device you use in this book of time and Mm. like a film thing. Do other books do that or is this the first time you've done it? Of mine, you mean? Mm. Your, Your own books. Yeah. It's one of the pleasures of writing, actually, is, is when in a narrative you make a large leap of some sort. Sometimes that's time-wise. You could say, you know, two years later, such and such happened. Or, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, you know, ten years later is always a bit of a thrill and a shock because it's, it's a great leap. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I guess you could say, you know, ev- every story anyone writes has to employ time, even if it's just in a sort of plodding and then and then and then linear sort of way. But no, I think uh, part of the discovery of this particular narrative voice was um, also the discovery that I could play uh, or rather use the voice um, in the service of uh, the construction, you know, the unusual time construction that this book has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's clear <laughs> went a long way to winning you the Booker Prize because the comments I've seen is all about that, not just your extraordinary ability with language, but just this, this construction of the views must have fascinated the judges and thought, what have we here? Well, uh, I've no idea what you know fascinated them. I'm just glad that they liked it enough. I mean, I, um, I know that part of their thing, because by the time they reached the you know, the last round of judging, the books on the shortlist, the six books on the shortlist have all been read by them effectively at least three times. So I guess the books have to withstand rereading, which, you know, a lot of books don't necessarily. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so that's, you know, that's one factor. Well, I'll be rereading this one, <laughs> for example. Well, Damon, as I said, it's a nice thought to leave people with, I guess, if, if, if they feel that way. Do you have another choice for us, Damon, your third piece of music? Yeah, for my third piece, I've chosen Where Flamingos Fly by Jill Evans. Or I guess his name actually is Gil Evans, um, if he's an American, right? But he, uh, this particular album, it's out of the cool, is, yeah, just very, very cool. All the, all the jazz pieces on it, very, very slow, um, gentle, very kind of sensuous. And this particular piece has one of the greatest lead-ins that uh, I know from jazz.
where flamingos fly. Gil Evans there, another choice of my guest. On this week's edition of People of Note, the award-winning author Damon Galgut, whose book The Promise has just won the 2021 Booker Prize. Do you not want to ask you, Damon, just to move away from all this at the moment, how long ago did you want to become a writer? Because your first book, apparently you were 17. So have you always wanted to be a writer? Was there a literary thing in your family or what happened? No, not really. Yeah, I developed the urge early on when I, well, you know, I, I've told this story over and over. So it sort of feels like it's just a fact. But actually, I don't know that it's true. No one really knows why they would want to spend their lives doing this strange thing. <laughs> but I um, I was sick as a child and spent a lot of time in, uh, you know, hospitals or sick rooms. And uh, various relations used to come and read to me. And I was just discovering reading as one of life's great pleasures. And um, it just seemed like a logical sideways hop from there to want to be telling my own story. Mm-hmm. So, you know, various things fed into that. But, yeah, from early on, I'd already written a couple of truly terrible novels in high school before that first one, which I wrote in my last year, I think, um, got published. But um, that's only mildly terrible. The ones before that were truly <laughs> terrible. Unfortunately, <laughs> we'll never see the light of day. It's okay. And do you read now a lot or not? You mean books in Other general? Other people's books, yes. Yes, books yes, in yes. General. You can't possibly want to write and not read. Uh, I, I never understand that. Um, mm-hmm. If students say to me they're not really interested in reading but they want to write a book, I lose all hope. No, it, it just doesn't work like that. You have to stay open to various voices, various ways of storytelling, various you know, narrative techniques, I mean, and be excited by some of them and less by others in order <laughs> yes. to formulate your own voice, you know. And do you have, if I were to ask you, an author that inspires you or that you admire or that you particularly enjoy reading? No, quite a few. Okay. Uh, and, and they're sort of an eclectic bunch because you tend to respond to authors for different reasons. So, you know, I couldn't respond to an author for fantastic use of rhetorical voice, you know, someone like Cormac McCarthy or William Faulkner, who he derives from. Um, but I can also, for almost the exact opposite reason, be attracted to a writer like Marilyn Robinson, um, whose you know profoundly religious book uh, *Gilead*, um, narrated by a minister, church minister in rural America, has a really almost metaphor-free, still surface, like a very, very clear body of water, mm-hmm. um, and it has its own power. Um, you can't, you cannot really achieve. Uh, a clarity of spiritual insight with a rhetorical voice, but you can do it with a very, very still voice. So, you know, both those opposing techniques are of great interest. Um, that's just to give you two examples, but, you know, okay. there's a bunch, no, bunch no, of writers. Yeah, no, no, sure. And you've mentioned or you've hinted at the fact of your liking stillness and peace and you don't listen to the radio much, you don't have a cell phone, you don't watch television. Um, is this, is it an important part of your life, the stillness, this almost a contemplative feel it seems to give me? I guess I've always liked, needed a certain amount of silence and isolation. I mean, I often have gone walking just to uh, exercise my mind if I need to think about something, which is more about being on your own than anything else. Yeah, I mean, you know, equally I have those moments where I need human conversation, so I'm, I'm certainly not someone who lacks friends. I see people. But you can't really do this job without being, as I said, on your own a lot of the time. So mm. you, there are different ways of being on your own. I mean, I very often play music if I'm working, but it has to be 
something that doesn't have vocals because that really pulls your brain whereas <laughs> yes. jazz for example has rhythms that that very well suit my thinking or while thinking. you're actually writing hmm. yeah Gosh, that's interesting i thought you might sit in absolute silence and write mm, i mean sometimes i do but you yeah. know there's no such thing as absolute silence that's no, the that's trouble the so thing. every little sound from outside becomes magnified in your head and can be problematic whereas music tends to cover it like mm -hmm. a kind of a soft rug of something a soft rug that's a good mm -hmm. description mm -hmm. and have you ever played an instrument or have you just mm -hmm. always enjoyed music as a relaxation yeah i mean i have to say actually music only entered my life relatively late i was not one of those teenagers who grew up with music not at all i actually when i went to live in the Karoo for a couple of years and knew that i'd be on really be on my own for long periods of time I decided I needed to take music along with me um, and that was the first time I began actively listening a friend actually gave me this is how long ago it was cassette tapes <laughs> and I bought a cassette player and I started listening to jazz and blues out there and that became my thing so um, my musical education is fairly stunted and it's also relatively recent what's interesting about hearing you say all this is am I right in saying that at Pretoria boys you were head boy? Uh, yes, I believe you're correct. Because that's quite a out there sort of thing, isn't it? <laughs> what, what do you mean? Well, I mean, you've got to lead and you've got to be bossy and you've got to be yes. um, sort of blue-eyed boy. Yeah, it, it really uh, feels like another life, uh, which, you know, childhood probably does to most of us by now. Um, mm. Yeah, it was something that mattered to me back then. I was very sort of proud of it. Um, but if I look back at the schoolboy personality that I developed, um, it's not something I'm especially attached to now. <laughs> really? Um, so, yeah, yeah, I did have to be bossy and various other <laughs> things, but um, I don't really know why I wanted those things. You know, as I say, that's true of a lot of life as you go on. Um, yes. You look back at your earlier selves like sort of snake skins you've dropped along the way and think, oh. <laughs> That's a good description, snake skins you've dropped on the way. There's some lovely imagery in your book. I mean, just one that springs to mind. You talk about this thunder gurgling from the sky when they, you were describing a thunderstorm. Also quite a hair-raising account of a cremation, may I say. But let's not go there. Let's go to your next piece of music, Damon. Your fourth piece. There we go. My fourth piece is by the group called Guzzle. Um, it's called Snowy Mountains, and it comes from one of their albums called As Night Falls on the Silk Road. And I've included these guys because India has been a large part of my life in the last 20 years or so. I've been back there 13 times, I think, and spent Good a lot gracious. of time there. And, you know, You've got to tell me why. You've got to tell me well, why. Well, I, I don't really know why, it, uh, because I've used to do a lot of traveling but never really went back to the same places but India became a spot that just drew me back and back I mean you know I suppose on multiple levels mm -hmm. but I've spent long periods staying there and working um, six month stretches at a time so is there anything spiritual about it well the, they would tell you a lot um, yeah. my perception of it um, was that it was very, very active religiously, but that there wasn't a huge amount of spirituality attached. If you see spirituality as, you know, cultivation of a particular interior state, I mean, um, but listen, uh, I'm probably drawing down all kinds of ire on my head by saying that. My, my sense was that in India is very, very active. It's very busy. Everyone has to hustle 
to get by. So, you know, there's a lot of physical activity. The sense of interiority is hard to get just mm. on the level of being alone or private. Um, it's very, very populated, the most popular place I've ever seen. Yeah. It's, it's part of what is so fascinating about it is the kind of barrage on your senses of every particular sight, smell, taste, color. And this group that we're about to hear mm. is an Indian group, is it? Not exclusively, no. One of, one of their players is playing, um, I believe, a Persian stringed instrument, the name of which uh, escapes me right now. But um, it's, it's a sort of fusion. They're two Indian musicians. One, well, he's Iranian, uh, Persian uh, musician. And the music that they play is a form of improvising around traditional Persian or Indian music. So it has a loosely... Indian sound theme to it, but it's not bound uh, in the same very, very structured way that Indian classical music is. I'm intrigued to hear. Let's listen. Damon, you're going to have to back-announce that since you gave it such a lovely introduction. What have we just heard? We heard a piece called Snowy Mountains by a group called Guzzle, which is, incidentally, a particular um, form of music um, in India and Pakistan. Often Urdu, it's a kind of an ode of love uh, to a loved one or to God or gods, I guess. Um, but very personal and kind of heartfelt, usually a very melancholy kind of uh, form. Um, And it's from an album called As Night Falls on the Silk Road. Now, my guest here on People Have Noticed, Damon Galgut, the award-winning, he's just won the 2021 Booker Prize for his book, The Promise. And um, we're reaching the end of our interview, but I'd like to know what sort of gap do you have between books? Have you got another one in mind, or am I jumping the gun here? I've always been very slow. I take a long time to find what it is I want to do next. Um, In this case, I actually was underway with a collection of short stories. I had, I've accumulated over the years, you know, 
five, six short stories that would be usable in a collection. And I thought uh, if I wrote a few more that, you know, I could make up a book. Um, of course, the theory of it is always much easier than the, <laughs> the practice, the execution. <laughs> so, um, yeah, short stories are not necessarily easier than novels. They they have their own challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I, that's what I was busy with until the book uh, eclipsed my life. But I hope to get back there. <laughs> Eclipsed your life indeed. And um, I heard you say just now about a student. Uh, Do you teach? Very uh, obliquely. I used to be more involved, I guess, in the UCT creative writing program when Stephen Watson still headed it up. Um, These days I do occasional mentoring of students because each student has to submit a piece of writing um, mm-hmm. as their thesis. So, you know, some of them that are doing novels, I have had the pleasure of mentoring along the way. A couple of them, books that have ended up being published. Um, yeah, it's, I guess, nice to have a mentor, somebody you can bounce ideas off. I of wouldn't, course. I wouldn't mind of having course. such a figure myself. But <laughs> Well, there you go. So your life is actually quite busy, and no wonder you wanted to be quiet and contemplative sometimes. Well, yeah, but I wanted it that way even when it was. Oh. Now it isn't. Um, now I want it even more. <laughs> but, um, you know, while, while this lasts, um, if, of course, it's nice to be noticed. And it's especially nice if it leads people to the book, because that's what all of this is essentially about for me. It shouldn't be the writer. It should be what the writer creates. And exactly. And even some people are going to read it a second time. Some people in this very room. Well, um, <laughs> I won't hold you to that. But you know what, Damon? We've come to the end of the interview, and I've just realized that I haven't actually congratulated you because everyone is congratulating you widely, and I kind of thought I'll congratulate you later. So congratulations from all of us at Fine Music Radio. Oh, well, thank you. On uh, an amazing achievement, the Booker Prize. Thank you. And um, hope to speak to you again sometime. What is your last piece of music? Well, just to vary the fare, I thought we could go out on a piece of Leonard Cohen, um, you know, who's also a great lyricist um, and his song Everybody Knows is just sort of you know quietly cynical enough to uh, be a good underpinning for a day like this (laughs) that's how we'll end Damon Galgut thank you very much and all the best thank you everybody knows that the day is so loaded everybody rolls Fingers crossed, everybody knows the war is over, everybody knows the good guys lost, everybody knows the fight was fixed, the poor stay poor, the rich get rich, that's how it goes, everybody knows. Everybody knows that the boat is leaking Everybody knows the captain lied Everybody got this broken feeling Like their father or their dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets Everybody wants a box of chocolate And a long stem road Everybody knows Everybody knows that you love me, baby Everybody knows that you really do Everybody knows
discreet, but there were so many people you just had to meet without your clothes. And everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. That's how it goes. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. FMR.